All right, so we come back to our study in Hebrews and picking up today in the fourth chapter and verses 14 through 16. So we come to the conclusion of chapter four today. So verses 14 through 16, let me read them. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know, it's interesting, as, as we come to this, it's really... Uh, picking up and, and finally focusing on what the author wanted to uh, direct our attention to way back in the first verse of the third chapter. There in the first verse of the third chapter, uh, he wrote and he said, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So, there he uh, brings up the, the fact that, that Jesus is our high priest, and he says to them, he says, now, can, I want you to consider Jesus as our high priest, but yet he, he sort of takes a detour, and then here in verse 14, he finally comes back to that point, but he takes a detour because he senses uh, that he needs to uh, assert once again the supremacy of Christ over all that was connected with the old covenant. So in the chapters that we've been looking at, uh, the remainder of chapter three and the majority of chapter four, he's shown how Christ is superior to Moses. He's shown how uh, the, the Sabbath, which was a huge uh, issue for the Jewish people, was actually a uh, prophecy of the rest that Jesus would bring to his people. He's gone on to show how Jesus is superior to Joshua. And also, as he's showing the, the superiority of Christ, he continues to insert the warnings uh, not to drift away or not to draw back or not to loosen their grip on their, their confidence in Christ. And so now as we come to verse 14, like I said, he, he kind of, um, you know, after having gone on that detour, he comes back to the, the subject of Jesus being our great high priest. So seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now for them, at that time, they would have had, you know, a, a fairly thorough understanding of the, the role of the high priest. But for most of us, that, that probably escapes us. So we need to, uh, before we look at Jesus as our high priest, we need to take a moment and just look at uh, the position, the role, and the function of the high priest. So when, when God set up the the mosaic, we call it the mosaic system because it came through Moses. Uh, there was a priesthood that was established and there was a, um, 
a tabernacle that was built and there was a sacrificial system. And the priest, of course, had to do with, with all of that. Now, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest. And it was the high priest who was really the intercessor between God and the people. Uh, the high priest was the only priest that was ever able to go uh, directly into the presence of God in the tabernacle or, or later in the temple. So the, the tabernacle was divided into um, the, the general area where uh, the, the people came to worship and then there was the holy place where the priests did their uh, functions, but then there was what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies, and this is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. This is where the very presence of God was, and it was behind this thick veil, and no one could access the holy of holies except the high priest, and the high priest could only do that once a year. And so once a year, the high priest would go uh, with, uh, with blood uh, that had come from the sacrifices and he would go into the, the holy place and he would make atonement for the people. So it was that one day a year, the day of atonement, that the high priest um, went in directly into God's presence. Now in Exodus 28, we have all of the, the detailed instructions on the priesthood and uh, the sacrifices and the, the building of the tabernacle. But we also have their instructions, very specific instructions on the uh, making of the clothing that the priest were to wear. And, and the high priest was uh, to wear this garment that was especially made for him. And instructions are given there about the, the materials that are to be used and the colors that are to be used and and, you know, all of this very fine detail is given. And it says regarding the clothing of the high priest that these clothes were made for glory and beauty. And so all of this, now we see now, looking back from the New Testament point of view, the reason why there was all of this intricate detail and the reason why the high priest had to be decked in these garments that set him apart from everyone else and gave him this uh, sort of uh, you know, glory and beauty that was attached to him was because all of this was pointing to Jesus who would come in the future. So he had these garments, they were for glory and beauty. And then there were two other features that I'll just mention real quickly that um, are relevant with the, the garment of the priest on the on the shoulders of that garment, there were, there were stones. There were two what were called onyx stones. And the names of the children of Israel, there are 12 tri tribes of Israel, uh, the names were engraved into those stones. Six names on uh, each stone. And they were worn, uh, in, attached to the garment, and they were, they were carried on the shoulders of the priest, the high priest. Then there was also what was called the breastplate of judgment that the high priest would also wear on this special day when he would enter in there before um, God's presence. And the breastplate of judgment uh, was a breastplate that had uh, embedded in it 12 uh, 
precious gems. And the, the gems were representative uh, of the people. So each one of the gems stood for one of the names of the sons of Israel. And this breastplate of judgment covered the heart of the high priest. So over the heart of the high priest, these, uh, these precious gems were there um, over the heart of the high, high priest. And so uh, the onyx stones on the shoulder, uh, they, they were there uh, to, to represent collectively the people. And then the, the breastplate was more of a representation of them uh, individually. So now the high priest, he would then enter the most holy place with blood that one time a year, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. So with that as the background, all of this was pointing to something greater. You see, all of these uh, Old Testament things were, they were, they were prophetic, it, the, the part of the nature of them was to, to speak about things to come. And you see, the problem that the writer is addressing is that the people that he's writing to, they want to hold on to the things that were uh, pointing to the greater thing that would come in the future. The greater thing has come, but they're, they're insisting on holding on to the things in the past. But he wants them to understand that no, all of these things were just were pictures of the greater thing. Uh, the high priest, Jesus, is the greater and the better high priest. And so, as it says in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed, and here's the key, he's passed through the heavens. You see, the earthly high priest could pass from the holy place behind the veil into the holy of, uh, holy of holies, but he couldn't pass into heaven. He couldn't pass into the very uh, presence of God, but that's what Jesus did. So this is the superiority of Jesus as our priest. He doesn't just go annually with the blood of an animal into the presence of God in the holy of holies. Jesus passes right into heaven itself. And, and as the letter will tell us later, not with the blood of animals, but he comes there with his own blood that makes the total and final atonement. And just as the high priest had the stones on his shoulders and uh, the breastplate with the precious gems, this was speaking about Christ bearing us uh, on his shoulders, that, that greatest place of strength, that he has the strength to bear us up collectively as God's people, and that he also has mercy and compassion for us, and that, that was indicated by the precious gems over the heart of the high priest. So these things were pointing to Christ. And so once again, he says, since that's the case, let us hold our confession. He keeps warning them about not uh, loosening their grip on Christ, not letting these great realities slip away, not drifting back to the past, but, but maintaining what they have. And then he goes on and he says this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tested, tempted, as we are yet without sin. So he wants them to know that Jesus as our high priest is there before God to intercede for us, to help us. And he also wants them to know and us to know as well that he is not unaware of or indifferent toward or untouched by or unsympathetic toward our weaknesses. You see, this is the problem that they had and it's a problem that we have so often. Uh, We think of God as being detached. We think of him as being unaware of the struggles and and the difficulties and the problems that we face, but nothing could be further from the truth. You see, as our high priest, as our intercessor, Jesus can intercede for us so completely because he himself has been where we are at. And that's what the author wants to remind them of, and that's what we need to be reminded of as well. We have a high priest who is sympathetic toward our weaknesses. The word for weakness can be used to describe any kind of weakness or uh, a lack of strength. It could be physical, it could be mental, it could be emotional, it could be moral, it could be spiritual. Whatever the case, he is able to sympathize with those. Or as the the King James Version says, um, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That, to me, gives a really good picture. Um, You know, we're infirmed, we're uh, afflicted, we're suffering, and what he's saying is Jesus is not untouched by that. No, he's, he's actually been touched by it. So we have a high priest who is sympathetic with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. The reason Jesus has sympathy for us in our struggles is because he was tempted like we are. But this statement here, he was tempted in all points like we are, this to me is one of the the great understatements of the scripture. You know, oftentimes the Bible is very understated. You know, you read some things that are so profound, but they're said so plainly and simply and in, in such an understated fashion. I think of um, the example in the Gospel of Luke where it's talking about the resurrected Jesus. There's Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He appears in the midst of the disciples, and it says, and they were glad when they saw the Lord. I mean, talk about an understatement, you know. (laughs) They were glad when they saw the Lord. Well, you could have said, they were absolutely astounded. They were were thrilled. You know, that's kind of what you would expect them to have said, but no, they were glad when they saw the Lord. And so here, when it says he was in all points tempted as we are, that is a huge understatement. And this is the reason. Jesus was tempted in ways that none of us could ever be tempted. He endured temptation that we couldn't even imagine undergoing. Anytime you're tempted to think that Jesus 
doesn't get what you're going through, or he doesn't somehow understand uh, the, the struggle or the difficulty or the grief or whatever it might be, know that that thought is not right. Because he was tempted, tested, tried in all points just as we are. Let me give you three quick examples. And I want to use them with uh, tempted, tested, and tried. Because I, I'm using those three words because the, the word translated tempted here is also translated tested and tried. It's the same word, it just depends on the context. When we think of temptation, we usually think of the, uh, the temptation to do something evil. You know, we think of lust or we think of um, greed or we think of hatred or uh, murder or, or something like that. You know, somebody being tempted to do that. And, and that's correct. But there's also uh, a, a tempting, which would better be termed a testing, where you're not necessarily being... Uh, tempted toward evil like that, but you're, you're undergoing intense pressure that ends up you know, testing your faith. And that, that's the idea behind this word. It includes that. But think of Jesus in um, regard to tempting, testing, and trying. Satan comes to Jesus, and he says this. Jesus is, uh, he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. And the, the devil comes to him. And at a certain point, he gives him three temptations, but I'll go to the third one. He says, all the kingdoms of this world and all the glory of them, I will give to you if you will but bow down and worship me. No human being has ever been tempted like that. The devil has never offered all of the world and all of the kingdoms and all of the glory to any one person. That's the kind of temptation that Jesus underwent. Now remember, Jesus came to redeem the world. The temptation was this. I'll give you the world, but you don't have to do it God's way. I'll just give it to you. You don't have to go to that cross. You don't have to die for sin and all of that. The devil's saying, no, you just bow down and worship me and it's yours. You can have it. So that's a temptation that none of us could even imagine. None of us could uh, ever uh, hold up under that kind of temptation. Of course, we, we settle for so much less quite frequently, actually. Secondly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, so great was the satanic pressure on Jesus in the garden that he sweat, Luke tells us, he sweat great drops of blood. So he was tempted in all points like we are. He was tested in all points like we are. Have you ever been in this kind of a testing, this kind of satanic pressure upon your faith that the pressure is so great that you sweat great drops of blood? No, you haven't. Neither have I. None of us have. This was a, a unique uh, testing where, where all of the, the pressure of the devil was put upon Jesus. And so you see, as I said, this is really an understatement because Jesus was, was tempted. He was tested so uh, far beyond anything any of us would ever know. One more, the final one. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by God. Now, we might sometimes feel that way. We, you know, at times maybe even 
have thought, well, maybe God has abandoned me, but he hasn't. But Jesus truly was forsaken by God. So when the writer says that he was tempted or tested or tried in all points as we are, know that it was far above anything we could ever know. So that tells us there's nothing that I go through that Jesus can't be sympathetic with. In other words, there's, not, there's nothing that I'm going to go through that is greater than something that he could relate to. We come to Jesus with our burdens and he says, oh, I'm sorry, I've, you know, I've never been through anything like that before. I don't know how to help you. There, there's nothing, nothing at all that you'll ever go through that Jesus would not be able to understand um, by experience. But then he tells us he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Now, this yet without sin, it could intimidate us. It's not meant to, as I'll show you in a moment. But it could intimidate us. You think, well, you know, how can I come to Jesus? I mean, he underwent all of this, this temptation, this testing, this trying, and he never sinned. I crumble so easily. I, I fall into sin so easily. I, I break under the pressure so easily. How, how can Jesus really, you know, how could he relate to me? Because he didn't do that. He was without sin. It might be intimidating if we misunderstand it. These words are not meant to intimidate us. They're meant to encourage us. What they're meant to show us is that the world, the flesh, and the devil were unable to overcome Jesus and the strength that he exerted to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil is the same strength that he will give to us in the battles that we face against these enemies. That's the good news behind uh, he was without sin. Jesus got the victory over these things for us and he, as we come to him, he will give us what we need to also obtain the victory. And so, since that is the case, Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, just on a personal note, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, these three verses here. They are so comforting. They are so encouraging. They, they bring such hope. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You know, there's a weird thing that we tend to do is when we're in trouble, a lot of times we tend to run away from the presence of the Lord. Instead of turning to him. And obviously that was the problem with the people that the author is writing to. He keeps telling them, don't lose your confidence. Don't go back. Don't drift away. They were going through testing. They were going through challenges and difficulties. But instead of running to the Lord for help, it seems that they were sort of running away from him. And they were going to all kinds of other things for help. 
But we do this. It's a strange thing. People often shrink back from the Lord because of guilt and shame over their sin. This is very common, isn't it? When we sin, what is the first thing that we think? We think, I got to go hide from God. This is the way it's always been. You think back to the very first uh, people, Adam and Eve. And remember what happened when they sinned? It says that they hid themselves. And so when God came for his daily fellowship meeting with them in the garden, they were hiding. But that, that's what we do. We, because of our sin and the guilt that results from it and the shame that comes along with it, we so often do the very same thing. We run, we hide, but the scripture says not only not to do that, what does it say to do? It says to come boldly. Come boldly. The word boldly, it means to come openly, frankly, confidently, fearlessly, the picture is you're just, you're just busting right into the throne room with your problem, even with your sin, that you're coming there, you're coming to this throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. Now, granted, when, when you just stop and think about it, you might question like, well, you know, that just seems so counterintuitive. It just seems so like it, it, that's not the way it works. And it seems that way to us because we forget one really important thing. That Jesus is all wrapped up with sinners. Look, we're all sinners. And guess who knows that better than we do? Jesus. He knows what he got with us. He knows that he got sinners. And so it's not a surprise to him when we sin. It's not a surprise to him when we fail. And what he's saying to us is don't go with your natural tendency to flee, to run, to hide. But no, instead, when you sin, when you get in trouble, come to me. Come to me boldly. Adolf Safir, I've quoted him a few times in our Hebrew study. He got this. He got it well. He wrote this. He said, Jesus belongs to sinners. From his birth to his death on the cross and his ascension to heaven, he belongs to us poor, guilty, and helpless sinners who trust in him. He is altogether ours. He came to seek and to save us who were lost. His obedience, his life of sorrow and love, his prayers and tears, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, all is ours because we are the wayward and helpless sheep who went astray and whom he found. It is with us sinners that the glorified Savior is now constantly occupied. We are his thought, his care, his work, his joy, his garden, his reward. It's so true. 
As a matter of fact, in the seventh chapter, as he's still really kind of on the theme of the priesthood of Jesus, he says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. I like what Sapphire said here. He, he really nailed it. It is with us sinners that the glorified Savior is now constantly occupied. That's what Jesus is doing in heaven. He's making intercession for us. He's there at the right hand of the Father. He's there at the throne. And so he bids us to come and listen. It is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of wrath. Because of what Christ did, it is a throne of grace. And for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, when they approach the throne, they approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace is the throne of power in the universe. It's God's throne. And from that throne, grace constantly flows to needy sinners. Grace constantly flows to needy sinners from that throne. And grace flowing from God's throne is simply this, the unendless supply of undeserved blessings. Now, like I said, this is, this is all really counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we naturally think that blessing is connected to performance, so if I'm going to get some kind of a blessing from God, I better have earned it. I better be worthy of it. This, this is the problem that we have. E even though we come to Christ and we know that that's not true because we know that we're saved by grace and we know that grace is undeserved favor, we still so often live that way. We still so often live, with, you know, maybe even subconsciously where we think, okay, you know, my, my basis for approaching God and um, hoping for blessing from him is my performance. And if I feel that I haven't performed, then I probably shouldn't go because I'm certainly not going to get any kind of a blessing from him. That, that's just the way we think. That's why we have to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord because we have to be re-educated. We have to be re-instructed. We have to be reprogrammed. And that's what God's word does. It reprograms us to teach us that grace is the endless supply of undeserved blessings. God blesses because he's good, because he loves us, because we're his children. You know, God has blessed my life. I never for one moment think, man, I'm so good. You know, look at these blessings. Boy, I must be just one of God's best servants. No, I know myself too well. I just think, Lord, you are so amazing. You're so good. You keep doing these, these good things for me. I don't deserve them. Yeah, that's what grace is all about. Now, notice what it says. Let us therefore come boldly, come boldly with confidence. We burst through the doors to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, like I said, these people were going 
to everything but the Lord to, to find help in their struggle, in their temptation, in their persecution, in all of that. They were, they were going to the wrong places. They were going away from the place they needed to go to. And even when it comes to sin, what do we need when we sin? We need forgiveness. We're not going to get that by running away from God. We're only going to get it by coming to him. And so that's what we're called to do. We are to come boldly that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy, here's the difference between these two things. They're, sometimes they're seemingly synonymous and there's an overlap for sure. But here's the difference. Mercy is the compassion that causes God to act on behalf of weak sinners. So, so mercy is more, it's more the attitude of God. It's, it's the compassion that, that moves God to act. So mercy moves God to act. The act is the grace that comes. So what does he say? That, that we are to go boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. As we go before this throne, God is merciful. He accepts us. He receives us. He has compassion for us. And then grace is the help in the form of God's power he gives to those in need. Now listen, grace is... It's, it's more tangible than we often think. We, we many times think of grace solely in a, uh, a theoretical, theological sense. Yeah, we're saved by grace, and that's just, okay, that's this unmerited favor of God, but it, it's not really tangible in, in our minds. You know, it's, it's more like theoretical in a sense. And, th- and there's, a, there's uh, a truth to that. I mean, it is a, a theological reality, but there's something to it as well beyond that that's, that's actually tangible because what grace is, is grace is help from God in the form of his power. Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's talking about something that's tangible. He's talking about the power that God supplies to the weak. So this grace is something that comes to us in the form of God's power. How does it work? Spurgeon said this. He said, it enters the soul. It penetrates the heart. It saturates the conscience. It abides in the memory. It affects the affections, gives understanding to the understanding, and imparts real life to the heart, which is the seat of life. You see, as we come to God as we come boldly knowing we're coming to a throne of grace and we come uh, seeking to obtain mercy, we know we have that mercy and we can have this confidence. God is going to give us the grace that we need to help us in our struggle. He's gonna give you grace. He's going to impart to you the thing that you need. That's why we pray. 
That's why we call upon the Lord. That's why we give you the opportunity to come and be prayed for because we know that there are things that we don't have any power over. So often people come to me with problems that are beyond anything I could ever solve. And if it was just up to me, this would be very sad. But this is the moment where I say, let's pray. Let's go to God. Because we're going before the throne of grace and we know that we've obtained mercy through Christ and we can be confident that he's going to give us the supply. He's gonna do what needs to be done. He's gonna strengthen us internally as Spurgeon described here, but he's also going to sort out those other external types of things that need to be sorted out. But even if those never get sorted out, he will give me the spiritual strength and fortitude to know his peace and his joy even in the midst of that particular storm. And so this is the great conclusion that the author wanted them to draw from their considering of Christ Jesus as the high priest. And as we think about Jesus as our high priest, let's remember these things about him. That he loves us. That we're so precious to him. We're like precious gems uh, over, uh, right there over his heart. That's how close we are. That he has the strength to bear us up regardless of the difficulty or the challenge just as the onyx stones were there with the names engraved on the shoulders of the high priest. That he can sympathize with our weaknesses. That he was tempted, tested, and tried just like we are. So when we come to him, we come to someone who knows not because they heard about it or read about it, but because they went through it. They lived it themselves. And even more than we might have ever imagined. Are you in need of help? Come boldly to the throne of grace. Lord, we thank you that there is a throne of grace that is your throne that you're seated upon in heaven. And Jesus, we thank you that you are that great high priest upon the throne. Lord, that you're our intercessor. Lord, that picture of a priest upon the throne, you're both the intercessor and the sacrifice, but you're also the sovereign, you're the ruler. And Lord, may that reality, may it strike deep into our lives today. And Lord, wherever help is needed, we thank you for the promise of grace. And we come boldly today with total confidence that you hear our cry, that you hear our prayer, and that you will give the grace we need to help in our time of difficulty or struggle. So Lord, would you just drive this truth home to us today? Burn it upon our hearts and make it a reality in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.